0: When most people get admitted to the hospital, they have no idea what that experience is going to entail. Did you know that when you get admitted to the hospital, first of all, there's many types of different hospitals you could get admitted to. You could get admitted to a teaching hospital, you could get admitted to a community hospital, you could get admitted to a government hospital, and that might alter your entire care. In addition, once you get admitted to the hospital, you could get admitted to a regular floor, a medical floor, a surgical floor, And that will also alter your experience. So, getting into the hospital is not the same everywhere for everyone. Stay tuned, and I'm going to go over what that experience will entail depending on how you wind up in the hospital. Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it, I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things, which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Baktari, M.D., Dr. Baktari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Baktari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. My name is Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. I have over 20 years of clinical experience in medicine. I've also been on clinical faculty at several medical schools. I've worked for hospitals and health insurance companies. So I have a deep insight into healthcare from every point of view. I wanna bring that insight to you and help you navigate your healthcare by getting inside information on how healthcare really works. So let's jump into today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about something very important, and that's hospital admission. We're going to talk about the whole world of hospital admission, how you can navigate that, understand it better, and even navigate it for your loved ones. So join me in this episode. Let's get into it. Now, hospitalization is something that we're all very familiar with because so many of us or our loved ones at some point have been hospitalized for either minor things or sometimes really major things. There's roughly 36 million hospital admissions in the U.S., and given the fact the population is 330 million, obviously many, many of us have either been hospitalized or have had loved ones hospitalized in the past few years. So there's a lot to unpack when it comes to hospitalization. And I think let's start off by talking about all the different types of hospitals that that you can potentially get admitted to. First of all, there is roughly two-thirds of the hospitals in the United States are nonprofit. What that means, well, is unclear sometimes. Clearly, there are nonprofit organizations that run hospitals, and some of that may be for tax purposes, some may be just based on their institutional uh, desires. But about one-third of them then become either government hospitals or private hospitals that are for profit. And there's roughly 400 teaching hospitals or university hospitals in the United States. So when someone gets admitted to the hospital, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, you know, what kind of hospital did I get admitted to? Have I gotten admitted to a county hospital, a community hospital? Have I gotten admitted to a teaching hospital? Have I gotten admitted to a VA? There's many types of hospitals and understanding where you're going to when you're first going to an emergency room or being admitted will help you predict the experience you're about to have. Now, once you get admitted to the hospital, there's another layer to consider, which is what floor of the hospital have I been admitted to? And this really depends on the acuity of your problem. So us in the medical world, we know the lingo, but I think for most patients, they don't necessarily know the lingo or the nomenclature we use. So for the people who are not very ill, we often send them to what's called the medical floor. And then there's a surgical floor, which is equivalent to the medical floor, but you have more of a surgical need. But if your acuity is worse and you need more attention, you can be elevated to what's called intermediate care, and w- at which case, you know, your problem is a little more serious and you're probably going to get more attention. And lastly, of course, you could get admitted to the ICU. ICUs, of course, the intensive care units. And there's a bunch of different types of ICUs medical, cardiac, surgical, neurological, uh, neurosurgery. But they all have one thing in common. They really focus on providing intense attention and treatment and monitoring because of the severity of the patient's problem. So before you even get started, those are the things to remember. What kind of hospital am I? going to and where am i going in the hospital as an added caveat the other thing that i think we need to consider is are you being admitted to what's called a teaching hospital or a non-teaching hospital and a teaching hospital are are going to be staffed in addition to the attending doctors they're going to be staffed by medical students interns residents fellows these are different stages of the medical training as someone trains to become a doctor and that will also impact your experience. And understanding if you're going to a hospital, even to have elective surgery, if you're going to a teaching hospital or what we call a non-teaching or maybe a community hospital, that is going to change your experience dramatically. Let's talk about the different types of hospital. Let's take a community hospital. Now, community hospitals, you know, by and large, tend to be somewhat smaller than teaching hospitals, although that's not always the case. And, you know, I think within, within the white swath of the country, a lot of community hospitals have, I would say, probably less beds, potentially less resources, and potentially, but not in all cases, less access to specialists, um, especially exotic specialists. Um, so when you go to a community hospital, um, while you probably will have access to most medical care, uh, you know, getting access to very specialized specialists may not be easy, but there are some community hospitals just who are not following that rule and have, are amazingly staffed and are amazingly big. But as a general rule, yes. And community hospitals, by and large, tend not to have uh, residency programs and medical training programs. Although, especially in the last 5, 10, 15 years, more and more community hospitals Have have affiliated themselves with medical programs and and medical schools, and now have residency programs and, and or residents and interns rotating through. So, I think that's evolving. But by and large, you know, community hospitals certainly will have less training programs and less often have training programs than bigger teaching hospitals or university hospitals. So that's something to be aware of. And that's going to change your experience dramatically if you're going to a community hospital, because you're not going to potentially see a resident, a medical student, and you're only going to get access to your attending doctor and any consultants that he or she gets. Now, if you go to a teaching hospital, that is when you may be inundated with a whole slew of doctors in training who are going to come see you. It's not unusual to get a third year medical student and sometimes even a fourth year medical student who will come in and talk with you and find out more about your history. They're doing that as part of their training and they're going to present the information you give them to their higher ups, being their intern, residents, fellows, and eventually the attending physician. So, you know, obviously that's an opportunity for you to convey information to them, but understand that their main purpose there is to learn uh, from taking care of you. Uh, and you need to be aware of that. That's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's, it is what it is. On balance, it can be a good thing because you have another healthcare professional in training that you can communicate concerns, information, which will ideally be passed along. Then you will meet the intern, maybe. The intern is the first year after medical school. And then subsequently, you might meet the resident, which is the second or third year after medical school, uh, sometimes fourth. Uh, and then finally, you might meet a fellow. A fellow is someone who is specializing in a subspecialty like, intro- like cardiology, pulmonary, rheumatology. Um, and then you will then potentially meet the attending doctor who's the head of the team. The attending doctor is the person who literally is the quarterback of the team, ideally with the most experienced, most knowledge, and the person that will be making all of the big decisions uh, throughout your hospital stay in conjunction with the team. You know, teaching hospitals can sometimes expedite things because you have a team of people, you know, working on you. The flip side of it is the redundancy and the communication from the medical students to the interns to the residents can sometimes potentially be not so efficient. So, uh, on balance, you know, it's, it can be better because often there's some member of that team that could see you if you needed immediate attention. Uh, Whereas if you're just relying on a hospitalist and that hospitalist is busy, um, you know, you're just going to be communicating through the nursing staff. I think the nursing staff at community hospitals, you know, they tend to play a bigger role in, in communication. In my opinion, Uh, to the primary care doctor. Uh, You know, I think uh, when there are no residents or medical students, I think us doctors rely heavily, more heavily, I would say, on the nurse's assessment and opinion of things that may have gone on. Uh, Whereas if you have a cadre of medical students, residents, and interns, you know, you might start, you know, you might start with them if you want to get a picture of what happened that day or what happened overnight. So that is, I'm not sure better or worse. It's just different. Um, I think nurse, the nursing staff, in my opinion, become more important in terms of transmitting information to the physicians in a setting where there are no residents or interns or teaching staff, you know, I think the most common question I get in a teaching hospital is, "Should I let, you know, anyone besides the attending, you know, do things to me?" And the answer to that question is complex because uh, it is a teaching hospital. They're there to learn, and uh, you know, I think it's a it's a fair barter because you know, while you're helping them get their education, they're also giving you extra attention and and maybe catching things that, you know, might not have been caught as quickly. So it's it's a barter that you're making. And uh, luckily, in, in the majority of cases, it, it works out in the patient's favor that getting that extra attention translates into ideally, you know, even better care. So, you know, if you're struggling with that, and, you know, there if there are moments that you feel uncomfortable, that you just simply feel that, You know, in this particular circumstances, you really would prefer to have someone higher up, you know, be involved. That request is made all the time where, you know, someone will turn to the intern or resident and say, hey, can I can I speak to the attending doctor or the hospitalist or the attending hospitalist in that case? And there's nothing wrong with that selectively to do that. But for most things, I think, uh, you know, going with the flow works out really well. In terms of what insurance will cover, depending on what type of your hospital, and that doesn't really impact you per se. I know, for example, Medicare will actually pay teaching hospitals a premium for the same care that they would pay a non-teaching hospital to cover some of the costs in running the residency program. So some of the DRGs, which is the system that hospitals get paid uh, with from Medicare, for example, there is some supplemental payment if you are providing that care in, in a teaching environment. And that's really meant to subsidize the residency program, um, because the argument can be made that a lot of these residency programs are operating at a loss. They're not generating enough revenue to, you know, validate their existence, and these supplemental payments from Medicare. Uh, help offset some of that. Well, I think the argument to subsidize residency programs to crank out more trained doctors, you know, if you subscribe to the theory that there's a doctor shortage, uh, then it kind of makes sense from a public health point of view. If we, if it's taking three, four weeks to see your internist uh, because there's just not enough doctors in your town, someone could make the argument that if the government subsidizes residency and training programs, that will be a, uh, a a good thing in terms of public health because you people will have more access to doctors that can be trained and come out of residency programs. So let's talk about the different floors that you could get admitted to. Let's talk about first the easiest one, which is if you get admitted to the medical or surgical floor. You know, those are floors that are really like almost typical hospital floors that we equate with in the movies where someone... Is sitting up talking, maybe even watching TV and, you know, they've had knee surgery or they've had a minor illness. Um, and those floors, you know, tend to provide, you know, good care, but it's really not meant for intense monitoring. So it assumes that your, your situation is stable. Certainly nothing life threatening. And because of that, you know, the nursing ratio may be, it will vary, but could be as much as one, one RN per eight patients. So clearly, those are not situations where, you know, if you want to ring the bell and have the nurse come see you, it's not going to happen often instantly. Uh, it's no fault of anyone's, but the nursing staff are often taking care of a lot of patients because these patients are relatively stable. And by stable, I mean you don't have any breathing issues, you don't have any heart issues, um, and you will be fine. You simply need care that can't be provided at home. I think that's really the filter that you're getting some sort of care, IV antibiotics, wound changes, something that for whatever reason can't be done at home then you'll be admitted to the medical or surgical floor. Surgical floor is also used for people recovering from very routine surgeries. And if they're not going to be discharged after that or right before surgery, they get admitted to the medical, I'm sorry, the surgical floor. So medical surgical floor is probably, you know, if you're in one of those, you probably are getting the message that you are not severely ill, you just simply need care. Now, as soon as that care that they're giving you on a medical surgical floor can be translated into care that they could give you at home or potentially even a lower level of care like a nursing home or rehab facility, more than likely there's going to be an impetus to move you in that direction. So again, getting admitted to a medical floor, you need some care that can't be done at home. But as soon as they can, that's probably... when you know you're sort of on the launching pad towards getting discharged. The next level floor is called intermediate care. Now, intermediate care for those of us physicians who've done this for a long time is generally a place we send you if we're at all concerned that while you may not potentially have something currently life-threatening, it could turn life-threatening, or it's life-threatening in a minor sort of way where you know, we would want, you know, a closer monitoring of you or the therapy we're giving you is more intense and requires more nursing attention. And there, what you're going to see is the nursing ratio will change and you may have one nurse for, you know, two, three patients. So if you're admitted to any intermediate care, you're probably sort of like in that no man's land. You're not a straightforward Admission where you simply need care, but not intense monitoring. And you're not so critically ill that you need to be in the ICU. So if you land in an intermediate care or one of your loved ones lands in intermediate care, it tells you, you know, the jury's out. It could go either way and hopefully it will get better. And so what you often see is people graduate from the internal, from an intermediate care to a regular medical floor, often prior to discharge. It's possible to get discharged directly from intermediate medical care, but it doesn't happen that much. You're probably going to get transferred to a medical floor as you stabilize. Of course, it can go the opposite way where you can then get transferred from the intermediate care to the ICU, which means your condition is going in the wrong direction or there's something that is making the doctors feel that you need more monitoring, or there's some therapy they wanna give you that they can't do in intermediate care. So once you get to the ICU, uh, there is where you're gonna have, most of the time, one-on-one nursing. So you're gonna see that nurse pretty much in and out of your room throughout the whole eight or 12-hour shift and you're going to be hooked up to a lot more monitoring machines. Now, if you're in an ICU, again, the same scenario. Um, You know, if you're not on life support, but you're in the ICU, that just means they wanna very closely monitor you or provide you therapies that really require very one-on-one kind of attention. And if you get better that, you know, again, you graduate ideally maybe to intermediate care, Sometimes people go from the ICU to a regular floor, especially people who are recovering from a major surgery, which they immediately improve a lot and they can go regular to regularly to a medical f- surgical floor. Often it, there's this step down where you go from ICU to IMC and then you go down to the regular medical floor. So th- those are the hierarchy. And again, depending if you're in a community hospital or you're in a, teaching hospital, sometimes even all those floors may have different sets of residents and interns. So as you get moved around, maybe often you will get a whole new team of residents and interns that are manning the ICU versus manning the other floors. So just be aware of that. Uh, and you may actually even have your attending doctor change because now there are attending doctors that all they do are manage people in the ICU. So the person who was taking care of you on the medical surgical floor and the team that was taking care of you may not be the same team when you go to a higher level of care and same as when you're coming down. As you're coming down, often it can change where you get a whole new team and literally they get to learn about you and and hear your story for the first time as you go up or down the care of the hospital. So I I think the next thing to keep in mind is if you get admitted to the hospital, you know, in the past number of years and so forth, you know, there have been two types of admissions. And one is what's called an observation admission, which is basically where it's felt that you need to be observed, but not admitted to the hospital. So While you may feel like you're being admitted to the hospital, what you're really being admitted to is what's called observation status. And observation status may look very, very similar to getting admitted. You may get a room with nurses and it may look identical. And what observation does is allows the doctors and the medical staff, 48 hours usually, to assess you, diagnose you, and come up with a treatment plan. So traditionally, people who get admitted to observation are people who may come through the ER, we don't fully understand because we need to do more testing maybe, whether they're sick enough to require a long hospital stay, more than 48 hours. Those people get classified to observation status. And as far as the insurance company and even Medicare is often concerned, you're still considered as an outpatient. And whatever uh, co-pays you have or however your outpatient structure is set up, often the billing is like that. Now, at 48 hours, the decision has got to be made to either discharge you out of observation or admit you to the hospital, as we call a full admission. Once you become a full admission, then you're treated like what we normally think of as a, as a hospitalized patient, so it's very important to understand the differences. So, if you're getting admitted to the hospital, you know, especially if it's, you're not so sick, you know, really clarify: Am I being admitted to observation status, or am I being admitted to the hospital in the traditional sense? Uh, that's good information to have. You'll certainly get a sense that the clock is ticking; that they have 48 hours to sort of do all their testing and get consultants to see you. So they can make a good decision about whether you need it, whether you need to stay and become a full admission. Now during that 48 hours, you may become a full admission simply based on the care you require. Certainly, if you wind up in the ICU or get sick or deteriorate, uh, you know, within that 48 hours, they can flip the switch and make you what's called a full admission. So while they have up to 48 hours to decide to admit you, um, they can within that 48 hours make the decision to make you a full admission when it becomes clear that more than likely you're not going to go home after 48 hours. As soon as that becomes clear, uh, the ideal thing to do is turn around and make the person a full admission. So again, just be aware that that exists and what the consequences of that is. And also to, to be involved and keep track of that. And, and that will also help. You. Help you understand how your hospital stay is going. If, if after 48 hours things are being wrapped up and they're about to send you home, uh, you may go home and have been in the hospital for 48 hours, but never really admitted to the hospital. So the question is, you know, can you have some say in whether your observation or admitted? And the simple answer to that is really no, because getting admitted to the hospital in the traditional sense, means you fulfill certain criteria. And so, if you don't meet the criteria to get admitted to the hospital, whether you're observation or they send you home, you just don't meet criteria. So, you yourself can't just insist on it. Um, the question is do you even meet criteria for observation? or because then otherwise you'd never send anyone home you you know in the ER you would just make everyone an observation just to be safe. So what we like to think is that there's criteria for every level and if you meet the criteria you get into it and if you don't you don't. I don't know if most patients know this but you can refuse to get discharged. I mean, you can you can actually refuse. They're not going to call I mean, most of them they got to call security uh and send you but I mean, within reason, if you just say, Hey, I'm having a lot of pain. I'm not ready to be discharged. Uh, you know, the argument they're going to make is, well, we're going to give you pain medication. You're going to get in pain medication here. You're going to get it at home. Then, you know, you're trying to say, well, I don't want to go home because I don't, I can't take oral pain medications. I need IV p- pain medications. You're going to have to create a rationale for why whatever you're going to get in the hospital you couldn't get at home and I think you know if if you can make the argument like hey um, I live alone I don't think I could take these medicines orally I'd like another you know 24 48 hours by and large you know I think that if you have a good doctor and you can make a case for why you don't want to be discharged um, you know, most doctors I know will factor that into their decision, uh, depending on whether you're making, you know, a coherent argument. Just saying I don't want to go home because I like it here <laughs> or it's more comfy uh, is not going to be the rationale that's going to win out. But if you can make a cogent ar- argument for staying, um, then, you know, I, I think it's uh, perfectly reasonable for a clinician to factor that in, in his discharge planning. So I've been bringing up this term, hospitalist, and let's just talk about that. What are hospitalists? Well, really, honestly, 10, 15 years ago, hospitals didn't exist. They had to be created. Uh, in the era before hospitalists, the person who usually took care of you when you got admitted to the hospital was often your primary care doctor or another doctor that happened to be on call for the ER but most of these doctors had their own practice and would see patients in the office and then had you know a handful or more patients that they were taking care of in the, in the hospital uh, it wasn't unheard of for your doctor to maybe come visit you before he started his workday in his office or during lunch or after his workday but it's clearly a lot of the doctors who took care of you were not physically sitting in the hospital you know, eight hours a day during the workday. As utilization management strategies got better and improved, obviously the concept of having a dedicated doctor who actually hung out at that hospital or just one or two hospitals, uh, you know, became more fashionable. And really the concept was that if we could have someone dedicated you know, who would stay there? We could provide certain efficiencies and some improvement in care that we wouldn't get otherwise. Uh, you know, before hospitals, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't unusual for a doctor to see you in the morning, order a test, and then come after work to see the results. With the hospitals, for example, they could order a test in the morning, and you know, get the results by 11 a.m. or 10 a.m. and come into come into your room and take the next. Course of action based on that result. So the idea was that hospitals could provide certain efficiencies. Um, and also, this is what they do for a living. You know, they're not in their office traditionally seeing, you know, sniffles and colds and flus. And so the idea being that they would be, you know, better trained to manage the typical problems of a hospitalized patients. So that now the downside to that is. You know, it's very unlikely in 2021, if you get admitted to the hospital, that the the doctor you saw in the office, you know, a month ago or last week will also come in and take care of you. So we've lost some of that connectivity between you and your primary care doctor. Uh, I think the the trade-off, theoretically, is that you're getting more efficient, maybe better care. uh, the downside, of course, is you you, the doctor you had rapport with and who probably knows you and who probably took care of you on the, on the, on the last several admissions you've had may not be there. So, and it's not unreasonable to think if you get admitted multiple times over a stretch of time, you won't have the same hospitals depending on which hospitals group has the current contract with your hospital, which hospitals still is with that group or what have you. So, there are some trade-offs in not having the same consistent doctor take care of you for years and years and years at, uh, over any and all the hospital admissions as well as outpatient. Um, but I think, I think someone would argue that that is offset or there's an exchange by having someone physically there, uh, you know, most of the time, and often even a colleague of that your hospitalist may be on call at nighttime physically in the hospital, which also wouldn't happen often if you just had your primary care doctor take care of you. So, so this concept of a hospitalist is really important to understand because if you get admitted to the hospital these days, it's a fair chance you're, you're going to be taken care of by a hospitalist. I think the only other question to ask is, you know, who does the hospitalist work for? And I guess that's important because hospitals can be a group of doctors who specialize in being hospitalists and their private practice group um, that has privileges in that ho- hospital. Or they can be an exclusive group of hospitals that the hospital has hired to manage their patients. Or they can actually be an exclusive group of Hospitalists that your insurance company has hired to manage you if you get admitted to the hospital. So I think having an understanding of who the hospital really works for will help you get a clearer picture of what is going on and, and what the strategy is. And not to say it's good or bad, it's just different and it's important to keep it in mind. But here's the thing. I think, I think the important thing to understand is The hospitals are measured by a couple of metrics, no matter who they work for. Whether they work for the insurance company, whether they work for the hospital, whether they're in private practice, at the end of the day, they're going to be measured on two metrics. Obviously, quality and outcome, right? Because if that's not good, it's not going to be good for anybody. It's not going to be good for the patient. Uh, But the other thing they're going to be measured is how efficient they are. You know, uh, you, you know, um, how efficiently can they provide the best possible care you need while not exhausting resources unnecessarily? So those metrics are going to be measured, and uh, and I think hospitals, like any other group of healthcare professionals, want to provide excellent care but they they're highly also incentivized to do it efficiently. And I think both those things come into play and you just need to understand that. I mean, on some level, you know, health expenditures are not unlimited The amount of money that can go into healthcare is not unlimited. So the strategy of course, is to provide great care, but how can we do it in the most efficient manner possible while that may seem like they're competing, those two concepts, uh, and they might be in certain instances. Uh, if you get the right combination of professionals together, you can often find a balance between, you know, being super efficient but providing great care. And also, a lot of that also depends on, you know, the kind of systems you have set up for discharge. So if you're going to say, listen, we're not going to do everything in the hospital. We're just going to do what's absolutely necessary. Then you also have to say, but the stuff that we're not going to do, we're going to set up a set of systems that will address it as an outpatient. We're going to give you the appointment with that specialist. We're going to set up the home oxygen. And we're going to do it in a way that nothing falls through the crack. And we're going to schedule you for a follow-up appointment with your doctor. The more of those things you can do, the more you can focus on just doing the stuff that's necessary, that has to be done in the hospital and pass the rest on efficiently so the patient gets great care even though we're doing it in an efficient manner. You know, look, at the end of the day, most healthcare professionals are in medicine to help people. Uh, I think, you know, I think most healthcare professionals want to do the right thing and I, th- I think they're getting better trained and developing more skills and more resources to provide, you know, things that don't require you to stay in the hospital. There are certain procedures and, and certain things that we can do now in surgery centers that we couldn't have done, you know, 10, 15 years ago. As technology improves, communication improves, uh, outpatient services improve, It's going to be a fluid thing. We're going to get better and better at managing things as an outpatient uh, that don't necessarily need a a hospitalization to take care of. So the answer to that is really, I I think everybody wants that. Everyone strives for that. Um, And, you know, hopefully most of the time we pull that off. So people... uh, you know, often wonder how a hospitalist is different than their internist or primary care doctor who has an office practice, who then sees people in the hospital, you know, an internist uh, who has a primary care practice, you know, is in the office and they're seeing, they're doing primary care. And a lot of primary care is, you know, just sort of basic bread and butter, you know, sore throats and tummy pains and what have you. I can be more severe stuff too, but, 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 You know, they're internists who do outpatient medicine, you know, spend a fair portion of their week, you know, inside of an office. A hospitalist, while often most of the time they're internists also, because they're not in an office traditionally and they're actually in the hospital, you know, 40 plus hours a week, you know, this is all they do. And so from that point of view, while they may have the same internal medicine training, uh, the fact that they only focus on taking care of hospitalized patients and getting them from ICU to IMC to floor and then discharge and getting consults and ordering tests and following up with testing. You know, they do this all day long versus a primary care doctor who has an outpatient practice where they may just do it before work, lunchtime, after work. Um, or maybe a couple of, you know, half days a week that they don't have office. So in the sense that they both have the same level of training, which is internal medicine, their day-to-day experience uh, would make a, a hospitalist, in theory, you know, uh, have much more skills in, in managing a hospitalized patient, potentially. Of course, there's exceptions, but that would be the theory. Now, during this talk, I've mentioned consultants several times. So let's talk about what consultants are. Consultants are basically specialists in other areas that may be called upon to see you. So, for example, if you get admitted for stomach pain, the hospitalist who's an internist will admit you. But it is possible that they will get a GI specialist to come and examine you and possibly do an endoscopy. So that GI specialist becomes your consultant. So depending on your acuity, what you need and what your problem is, your hospitalist who's going to be taking care of you will determine how many specialists will come see you and whether those specialists are needed or if they're needed in the hospital or you can actually see them as an outpatient after you get discharged. So those are the decisions. And some of that is based on how sick you are, the laboratories that are coming back, what they think is going on. Clearly, if you need a certain procedure like dialysis or endoscopy, that's something the hospitals cannot do. And, or if you, if they need to do a cardiac procedure, so they're going to have to get a cardiologist or a GI or pulmonary or a kidney doctor, or a nephrologist to see you, depending on what the problem is. So when you come in, you know, we talked about having residents and interns and having your hospitalist or, you know, your primary care doctor is managing everything. But more than likely, if you're at all severely sick, you're also going to be exposed to a whole array of consultants. And to complicate matters even worse, if you're in a teaching hospital, those consultants will have their own teaching staff. So if you, if you need a GI doctor, it may be that the first person to see you is a third year medical student or a fourth year medical student doing a GI rotation or an intern doing a GI rotation or a resident doing a GI rotation or a fellow in GI who's Learning to become a GI doctor, or you may actually see the GI specialist himself. So, if you're in a teaching hospital, almost every specialty might bring a team of three, four, or five people. And I'm sure for those of you who've been in teaching hospitals, you know, to see this sort of little herd of four or five, 10 people, you know, walking between rooms and from one room to another. You know, often they're just a specialty team going to see patients that they've been consulted on. So yeah, so in, in a, in a hospitalization at a teaching hospital, if you assume there's three to six people in every specialty, and if you have three specialties see you, you know, you could have 10, 15, 20 people that will be walking into your room in a non-teaching hospital that will be different because you're going to probably get the hospitalists and then the actual consultants in a non-teaching hospital. So in the last episode, you know, we talked about how to, you know, navigate your discharge from the ER, but getting discharged from the hospital is quite different. So once you kind of get the sense that you're going to be discharged from the hospital, you know, what you really want to focus on is, first of all, did you get all your questions answered? Do you really know what happened, what tests were done? Uh, you know, it's, it's not unusual for, you know, me to see a patient uh, who says, oh, I was admitted a month ago uh, for four days at some hospital. I'm like, well, what did they say? And like, it's a classic line, but they said, well, they didn't say anything. Well, they said something. And so you, part of it is for you to grasp as best as you can, if not you, your loved ones, you know, what was, what prompted the admission, what tests were done, what was some final conclusion. So that's very important because you don't want to leave the hospital just, you know, kind of saying, well, you know, I wonder what, what that was all about. But having said that, how do you navigate your discharge? First of all, there's often what's called discharge planners who are going to come see you. They can be a, a utilization nurse, a discharge planning nurse. And their job is to not only make sure you get home, but you get home safely and you don't come back at least because of something they could have done to prevent it. So they are going to be highly motivated to coordinate a lot of care with you and your family. But make sure you take that time to feel out all of the particulars. For example, if there's going to be a home oxygen company, make sure you know you have a a selection of home oxygen companies that you know you want to vet out maybe, call them up, make sure they're on their way. So when you get home, uh, whether it's oxygen, whether it's h- home IV therapy, whether it's home physical therapy, wound care, whatever services that they are going to be discharging you on, it's very important that you be your own advocate and and make sure you fully understand who these people are, when they're supposed to come. Uh, because what you don't want to do is once you get out of the hospital, you don't want to be an alert because. It's very hard when you leave the hospital to call your nurse back and say, I have one more question because that nurse doesn't have an extension usually. You could maybe reach her, maybe not. Or that nurse leaves the shift and her shift is over. Uh, and a lot of the hospitals, since they don't do outpatient medicine, You know, it might be very difficult to get a hold of your hospital. So really make sure you and your family have everything buttoned up. Write down numbers and phone numbers and names of companies and any follow-up appointment. If you saw a lot of specialists and those specialists said, hey, see me in my office, you know, it may be you go home and call the specialist and, and the nurse says, well, we don't have an appointment for three months, uh, especially if there is sought-after specialist, So you want to negotiate that with the specialist the last time you see them. Say, hey, I know you want me to follow up with you, but, you know, is there any way you can help schedule my appointment before I leave? So it's in the book's. Now, some will and some won't, but certainly the more of that you can do, the more of all of that can be, you know, put. A, if you could put a ribbon on a lot of the stuff, you're going to find out that things going are going to go a lot easier. If you leave the hospital with the mindset that you are not going to easily get in touch with anyone you saw in the hospital, I'm not saying it's impossible, I'm just saying it's not easy. If you go with that premise, you'll know what to do prior to the discharge. Don't let the discharge nurse leave you until you've got every T crossed and every I dotted, because navigating this on your own when you're at home is not going to be fun at all. Do it while you're there. You know, I mean, a lot of, you know, there's a way to do this without being high maintenance or be too demanding is simply, look, I just want to have everything teed up and set up because I want to make sure nothing falls through the crack and you have to be your biggest advocate. Your family has to be your biggest advocate. And what you're going to find is there are a lot of resources, you know, with the discharge planner can provide a lot of information. Take advantage of that when she's coming to see you or he's coming to see you and, you know, make sure that you and the discharge planner and your doctors and your consultants are all on the same page before you step outside that hospital. I think the overall theme is when it comes to the finances of being hospitalized is not to be naive about it. Whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, whether it's HMO or uh, private insurance or your self-pay, you don't have any sort of coverage. You have to understand that getting hospitalized is going to be a balancing act between giving you amazing care and getting you better versus doing it efficiently. And if you understand that both forces are working simultaneously, you'll, you'll understand what's going on around you because, you know, whether it's Medicare who often gives a very fixed payment to the hospital, based on DRGs or your diagnoses. And other factors can change that, but for the most part. And, you know, HMOs can often give a fixed payment and uh, and Medicaid often doesn't give enough to even cover the hospitalization. So clearly the longer your hospitalization goes, uh there the, you know, worse off the hospital, it may be financially. Uh, the flip side is if you they also want to provide you with great care. So, you know, how, and I think hospitals and doctors and organizations are getting better and better at that. How do we provide great, great care so the patient gets better? But how do we avoid overutilization or unnecessary stuff? And that's all those four forces are working simultaneously. Because if you assume the finances are somewhat fixed, not always, uh, then you understand why it's important to provide great care, but do it the most efficient manner possible. Okay, so let's just, you know, I've kind of gone over um, hospitalization and what it entails, but let's just go over some stats that I think will be interesting to understand. You know, first of all, There's about 900,000 hospital beds in the United States and roughly 36 million hospital admissions a year annually. And out of that, you know, what we see is about 40% of those are Medicare patients, 17% or so are Medicaid, 16% are private, another 15% are HMO, 5% are self-pay, meaning they have no coverage of any kind. So, and and the other thing, interesting stat is the average length of stay is almost 4.8 days, and a typical hospital day costs about $2,000 to $2,500 a day, you know, averaging everything out. So, you can see the numbers are huge. We're talking about 36 million admissions. Uh, this is obviously a big expenditure in healthcare, and, you know, while simultaneously, improving quality and outcomes. You know, what the goal is, of course, is to lengthen the the stay in the hospital uh, while still improving outcome. Uh, And doing that ideally by removing um, unnecessary things that are done in the hospital and, and moving those to more of an outpatient setting. But the flip side is also we need to improve care and quality because it doesn't really matter what your length of stay is if you bounce right back to the hospital or worse. So uh, I think those are the sort of competing goals when you look at these statistics um, and the payer source. So all those payer source on some level or another need to contain costs so they can spread the amount of li- you know, limited finances they have to provide care for the entire group that they're managing. So that is really the balancing act that is in play when it comes to hospitalization. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbaktarimd.com, to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, Baktari MD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Also, please check out my website, jonathanbaktarimd.com where you can subscribe to my newsletter and get more information about healthcare. I'll see you next week on another episode of MD for one-of-a-kind insights into healthcare. Know what the insiders know. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.